God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than yourselves. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. Good morning. We have a bit of an exercise of extremes here because Rob just read to you the word of the Lord in good King's English, and I'm going to preach in you in some kind of hillbilly ease. So we're, uh, but body of Christ and all of its gifts. So let's pray before we dive into Deuteronomy 7. Lord Jesus, we desperately need you. We need your spirit today to teach us. We need you to continue the work that you have started in us and you promised you will fulfill till the end. So, Lord, we ask today as we study your word together that you would transform us, that we would look more like you and less like our flesh. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been in the book of Deuteronomy now for a couple months, and sometimes when we get into a large book like this with a lot of things in it, uh, we lose sight of where we are and kind of the bigger picture. So I'm going to back up about 30,000 feet, and we're going to take a quick snapshot so that we can deal with the things um, that we're going to deal with today in Deuteronomy 7. The first five books of the Bible are called the Pentateuch. And we're in the last of those five books, the book of Deuteronomy. The first book of the Bible, Genesis, presents a story of creation, the fall, and the beginning of God's plan of redemption through Abraham, Isaac, 
and Jacob. The series of events takes Joseph, Jacob's son, to Egypt and eventually all of Jacob's family there. The book of Exodus starts to um, summarize the 400 years of life and slavery of Israel in Egypt. The storyline from Exodus 3 through Leviticus to the middle of Numbers covers the span of only one year. A year that gave great definition to the identity of God's chosen people. The Lord calls Moses at 80 years old back into Egypt in order to bring about his redemption of a people. And he does. He works through amazing events, God does, and through his servant Moses to bring that about. And at Mount Sinai, God gives the people his law. He makes them his own special people. And he instructs them in his ways, even though they sin repeatedly. The book of Leviticus provides more instruction for the Lord's people, particularly for their sin and their need for atonement. And the book of Numbers begins with yet more instruction and then describes the people's procession toward the promised land. But in Numbers 13 and 14, the unspeakable happens. The people of God rebel against God's plan for them by turning away from the land that he had promised them So he sends them back the way they came toward the Red Sea. And the rest of Numbers tells the story of the people wandering around Kadesh for almost 40 years, suffering the fruits of their disobedience. Yet God perseveres with his people. And once the original generation dies out, the people begin moving again in the last part of Numbers toward the promised land. And that brings us to the last book of the Pentateuch, the book of Deuteronomy, which is a book made up of a series of sermons that Moses gave to the people before he died to prepare them for their life in the promised land. His subject of these sermons, having experienced the love and the salvation and the grace of God, this is how you should live. Therefore, the theme that we're going to continually come back to today is the same. How does our experience of God's love, his salvation, his grace affect the way you and I live? So, let's turn to Deuteronomy 7. Throughout this chapter, there's a phrase that comes, that runs through the entire chapter, 15 different times the phrase, the Lord your God, appears. Moses is reminding and rooting the Israelites, rooting their loving obedience in the character of their God, the one true God, who has sovereignly chosen them, has loved them, and has redeemed them from slavery. So this section, chapter 7, verse 6 and 8, that Rob read to us, I'm going to read again. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any of the other people than the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you 
out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. When we read passages like this, it's hard for some of us because there's words in there like God chose. We don't like that. Makes our blood pressure rise. How makes us start to wrestle with the sovereignty of God, the will of man. And it just starts to get muddy. So many preachers avoid the subject altogether. Not Moses. Moses doesn't shy away from it. He actually brings it to the forefront, reminding God's people that his choosing is a gift. That he chose them. It is the bedrock of their identity. It is who they are. They are the chosen people. God's treasured possession, he says, out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, he chose them. Amazing. It was not because of merit or might. He tells them in verse 8, It was because the Lord loves you and is keeping his oath that he swore to your fathers. Moses is reminding the people that the only reason that they have a relationship with God is because God set his love on them and chose them. That's the only reason. Pastor Tim Keller says this, God's people are his chosen people, not his choice people. They're not chosen because of their superior numbers or their superior righteousness, their superior might. They are chosen because God decided to set his love on them. And that is the only reason. Theologian Christopher Wright says, Israel's status is grounded in the action of God in such a way as to remove any possible claims on Israel's part that their chosen status reflects their own superiority. You know, that's what it means to be the people of God. And in the New Testament, It's redefined, this phrase, the people of God, to include Jew Jew and Gentile. However, what it means to be a believer, how they become part of his people, still has the same language. If you look with me in John 15, verse 16, Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. And later in John 6, 44, he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. And then in Acts 13, after Paul and Barnabas preached the word of the Lord at Antioch, it says, as many as were appointed or ordained to eternal life believed. It's an interesting word order. 
Not as many as believed were ordained to eternal life, but those who were appointed to eternal life believed. This doctrine is not something that should upset us. It is the beautiful soil of the gospel. God does not love you because he grades on a curve and you happen to get a few more points and you're on the other side of the curve. No, the truth of verse 7 and 8 is that God set his love on you and because his love rests on you, he redeemed you from slavery. Ephesians 1, 4 through 6 says, Even as he chooses us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Because the Lord has brought you out with his mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. Verse 9. Know therefore that the Lord God is God. He is sovereign. You see, the people of God drew their identity from the identity of their God, the one true God. God's claim to ultimate deity is found in his action and specifically in his saving action. Who is the Lord your God? According to Deuteronomy 7, 9, he is the one who loves, who chooses, who delivers. He is the one who is faithful and steadfast and goes before you. He is the Lord your God. Yet Moses makes it very clear that there are those who love God and those who hate him. And these next few verses leave no slack. You either love God or you hate him. There's only two teams. And Moses draws the line. You either lovingly obey his commands or you disobey rejecting his word and hinder his covenant purposes. Verse 9 says to those who love him and keep his commandments, his grace is overwhelming. He will be faithful. He will keep his covenant. His steadfast love will go to thousand generations. But in verse 10, he says to those who hate him, his judgment is overwhelming. He will repay face to face. He will destroy. He will not slack with those who hate him. So putting this before the people of God, Moses then turns to verse 11 and he gives this warning. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. So, which camp are you in? And why? What do your acts of obedience and disobedience say about you? Are you a lover of God? Are you a hater of God? Now, with some of you, the red lights on your dashboard just went off. 
because you just, all of a sudden you thought, wait a minute. I thought you said God's love is an act of grace and unconditional love. How can God's love be conditional and unconditional? Here lies the beauty of the gospel. This is it. Jesus is the one who came and fulfilled completely the conditions of verse 11. The commands, the statutes, the rules. He followed all of them perfectly. Yet Jesus was destroyed in in line with verse 10 in our stead for our disobedience, for our hatred of God. He repaid that face to face with Jesus. So that now, by Christ's love and his choosing and his mighty hand, we have been redeemed from sin, the sins from our sins and the house of slavery that we lived in. We've been released. So now since Jesus Christ has fulfilled all the conditions of the law and through faith in his finished work, he has become our atonement. Now, the love of my Savior compels me and draws me and forces me to want to obey his law and to worship him faithfully. But even when I fail, and even when I fall, and even when I don't obey all of his commands, and all of his statutes, and all of his rules, there, has some, there is someone who has in my place, and there is forgiveness, and there is grace. And this is the beautiful thing even more beautiful than that. As one of his people, the Lord your God promises that because you listen to these rules and keep them and do them, the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that he swore to your fathers. He will love you, he will bless you, and he will multiply you. But why? What's the purpose of God choosing a people? Why would he do it that way? What is he doing? Verse six. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The purpose of God's choosing is to recreate or to um, redeem a people, a holy people, Israel was to be a new community, chosen, singled out, belonging to God and God alone, and set aside for a radical radical glorification of him. He was building a new society built on the worship of the one true God and him alone. In Exodus 19, you see the same same language. Now, therefore, I will... um, Therefore, I... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak 
to the people of Israel. The purpose of God's particular action in the history of Israel is ultimately that God, as the saving and covenant God, should be known fully and worshiped exclusively throughout the earth. Israel was God's chosen instrument. They were chosen by God to bring the knowledge of Yahweh to the nations. They were to be a kingdom of priests. God's purpose is to create a new people, a new community built on radical grace. A holy people that would mediate the beauty of God to the world through their conduct. But holiness like this is a corporate matter. It means being a part of a community that has been set apart to radiate radical grace to a world around them, to make God known by how they live. The Apostle Paul makes a key connection for us in Titus 2. And he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And Peter makes the same connection for us as well at, that as believers, we are God's people. And as such, we are a chosen race and a royal priesthood and a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Are you chosen? For what purpose? And how do you know that apart from being connected to a different community, a holy people? You cannot work this out by yourself. This is a corporate holiness and witness. This is the mission of the church, God's people. And it is vital to the redemptive mission of God. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood. How has God's, how has your experience of God's love, his salvation, his grace affected the way that you live out your identity in Christ in this body, in the world around you? Has the reality that God has chosen us in Christ and formed us into his holy people had its full effect? Are we a humble, radiant community? And if not, why not? Why 
don't we radiate radical grace? Grand humility. Why is it that the church at North Wake isn't as zealous for good deeds as it could be? I think this chapter and the warnings that Moses gives answers that question. And it answers it in two words, idolatry and fear. You see, in the first five verses of this chapter, after you read them, you're left wondering, why, why the Canaanites? Why are they singled out for destruction? To be totally wiped out. And why, God, would you oppose intermarriage and covenants with them in the promised land? And the answer simply is idolatry. Idols are God's rivals for his people's hearts. The Bible often describes idolatry as spiritual unfaithfulness and adultery. There anything in our lives, in the, God's people's lives, that demand worship and draw us away from the Lord our God. In verse 4, Moses says that if you intermarry with them, if you have intimate relation, relationships with this people, with their idols your son's hearts will follow and they will serve those idols and in verse 25 and 26 he comes back to the same theme and he says the craved the carved images of their gods you shall burn with fire and you shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them or take it for yourselves, lest you be ensnared by it. For it is an abomination to the Lord your God. And you shall not bring an abominable thing into your house and become devoted to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest and abhor it, for it is devoted to destruction. Don't be foolish. This is not just a Canaanite problem. This is a human problem. And you're not immune to it and neither am I. John Calvin has been quoted as saying that the human heart is like an idol factory. It just keeps churning them out. covetousness of silver and gold will ensnare our hearts just as it was warned it would to the Israelites and how many abominable things do you and I bring into our homes on a nightly basis on a daily basis that if we continue will lead us to destruction you see when you read Deuteronomy you're confronted with this command to destroy the Canaanites who live in the land. 
And if you're put off by that, please understand this. If you want to understand this book, and more importantly, the God of this book, you have to understand God's concern to be worshipped exclusively. This sin must be purged from God's people because idolatry is sin in its purest form. It is rebellion against the one true and holy God. Idolatry must be burned and put to death in God's people that God's people might be holy, set apart, radiant. That the worship of God might spread to all nations and all peoples. So what keeps us from that great command to go into the world and make disciples? To spread the worship of God across the street and around the world? I think it's fear. I think we're fearful. And Moses anticipates this with the people of God. And in verse, in verse 17, he says, If you say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispose them? He anticipates this because fear and anxiety, when you really boil it down, are distrust of God and what he says to be true doesn't matter what your eyes tell you. God says, I am giving you the land, go and take it. But they're too big and too mighty. Moses says the way to fight fear is to remember. You shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember that the Lord, your God, what he did to the Pharaoh and to all Egypt, the great trials in your eye, that your eyes saw, the signs, the wonders, the mighty hand, and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out, so will the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. Moses calls the people to remember. Remember. You shall not be afraid. You shall remember. And specifically, you shall remember what the Lord God has done. And in verse 21, that the Lord God is in your midst. Remember, God's people, what the Lord has done and that he is in your midst. And do not be afraid. The greatest antidote for fear is a great memory and to exercise it. To remember what the Lord God has done and remember that he is in your midst. Jesus, like Moses, knew that his disciples and those that would follow him would 
possibly be derailed from what he had commanded them uh, by fear as well. And so on the night before he was betrayed, he gave them an object lesson so that they would remember, so that they would not be distracted, so that they would not grow fearful, so they would not fall away. You see, he took a loaf of bread and he blessed it and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat it in remembrance of me. In other words, remember that my body has been broken for you. I have been destroyed so that you will not. And he took a cup and he blessed it and he said, this is my blood shed for you. The blood of the new covenant. So do this in remembrance of me. Remember what the Lord God has done. And remember that I will be with you to the end of the age. So as we come and gather around this table as God's people grafted in by Christ's atoning work, we come to a table of celebration. We come to a table of remembrance. Remembering what God has done and remembering what he promises to do. That one day you and I will gather around another table that we no longer will obey some of his commands and some of his statutes and some of his rules. We will obey perfectly because we will have been made perfect as he is perfect. And we will sit around a table and we will commune with him and with a fellowship of people, God's people, from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And we will worship him through eternity together as his chosen race, a people for his own possession. So as we prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper, I want to encourage you to lay down your idols, burn them, kill them, do whatever you gotta do, Lay them at the feet of the cross. There is grace and forgiveness there. And he longs to lavish it on you. So as we pray, please, please, put those things aside and cling to the grace that is yours in Christ Jesus. If you have never done that, I beg of you to consider what it means to forsake your sin and to lovingly obey, walking in repentance, lovingly obey God, trusting in what Christ has done for you, for your salvation, and that alone. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we come to the table, will you? Give us clean hands and a pure heart.
that as your chosen people, Lord, would you teach us how to worship you. To put away idolatry and to fight fear as we remember. so that we can obey your commands and statutes and rules in the land. Lord, we pray this asking you to do the work in our hearts that only you can do. Help us receive this with great thanksgiving and worship. We pray this for your glory and your fame alone. In Jesus' name, amen.